Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. I'm here with Parag Khanna. Parag, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Prague is a leading global strategy advisor, world traveler, and best-selling author. He is the founder and CEO of Climate Alpha, an AI-powered analytics platform to forecast asset values and future-proof global real estate, and founder and managing partner of FutureMap, a data and scenario-based strategic advisory firm. And I connected with you at YPO Edge in New York. You had this fascinating presentation, or I guess it was a debate about globalization, and I reached out to you, you were kind enough to come on the show. And this will kind of segue into where we're going to spend most of our time. But when I was doing my research and prep before we had this conversation, you have such a wide lens in terms of your interests, right? Macroeconomics, global affairs, immigration issues. But when you set the talking points, it was really focused on climate. So my question to you is, why is, given your breadth of knowledge and everything going on in the world, why climate? It's a great question, a great place to start, because to me, there's a common denominator and thread across all of those, you know, topical areas that you mentioned, whether it's globalization and macroeconomics and geopolitics and climate. And what is that one word that unites them all? It's geography, right? In my heart of hearts, I'm a geographer. For those who can see the video, there's a very large map behind me. I'm a cartographer in many ways, or I, I work with cartographers around the world and produce novel maps that have never been made before by anyone else because we create complex layer. We're mapping complexity. I'm a complexity mapper, right? And the world is more complex than it's ever been in the history of human civilization, where geopolitics affects economics, economics affects climate, climate affects infrastructure, infrastructure affects society, and on and on and on and on. on. So this constant set of feedback loops and chain reactions is complexity. And I try to put it on the map. And what does that have to do with climate? Well, it's climate as just one driver of of complexity. So the climate is forcing us to move. And that's what my last book was about, right? It was about how, you know, we're not just going to relocate once. People are going to become more nomadic and shifting and turning. And that then affects real estate. And real estate happens to be the largest asset class on the planet Earth. 
There is no sector of the world economy that comes even close to the aggregate value of all of the land and property assets in the world. It's $300 trillion. And even if you're just a renter of an apartment somewhere off the grid, you are affected by real estate because in somehow, some way, your 401k, your pension, you know, and even if you're not American, let's remember, I'm talking Japanese, even Russians have their retirement savings invested in American real estate. So the American real estate market, no joke, is in many ways the foundation of the global pool of savings capital in the world. And so as a company, we decided that climate adaptation and the adaptation of the American real estate market is literally a noble venture. I mean, there's nothing more important than adapting and retrofitting and preparing American society and American real estate for climate change. And therefore, that is what we do. So let's get into the the genesis behind the company and the founder's story and, and kind of how that impacted your investment thesis and, and now how you work with other individuals and families? So, I mean, you know, we started the company in a no- number of reasons. One, you know, I've, I've been writing books about geopolitics. Again, geography is a common denominator in all of my work, but I hadn't yet written a book about human geography. And human geography is just a fancy way of saying, where are you? Where are we? Where are we now? And where are we going to be? And so I wanted to work backwards in the year 2050 and make some educated guesses and forecasts about where the 9 billion people of the year 2050 will live. It might be less than 9 billion. It might be a little more. But let's assume there's 9 billion people alive in the year 2050. Where on the map, on the globe, are they going to be? Now, again, that has profound consequences for the entire world economy, answering that question. And interestingly enough, no one has actually answered that question, or at least put it on a map. And that's what my last book, Move, precisely set out to do with numbers, places, concentrations, everything. So I researched that book, you know, over the span of a couple of years, as I always do. And as I was researching the book, my parents happened to be retiring. And I grew up in New York, outside of Manhattan and Westchester County. And my parents got sick of shoveling snow. Not that the snowfall these days is anything like what it was when I was a kid in the 80s, but it's still too much for, you know, my parents in their 70s. And they were deciding where to retire and where to go. And they, sh- they they chatted with me and my brother. And they were like, you know, we're thinking about here and there. And they, they pointed to a couple of places in Florida. And we were like, look, you know, yes, you want to be in a sunny place and not have your arthritis inflamed. But you're also planning on passing this down to us, which we greatly appreciate. We love you dearly. But this is not an appreciating location. And the American dream, last time I checked, is about owning a home that appreciates over time. Now, climate change, alongside depopulation or demographic stagnation and a wide variety of other issues, including now higher interest rates, is putting the American dream out of reach for a lot of people. But climate change is really going to snatch it out from under you if you live in the wrong place, if you bought a home in the wrong place. So my brother and I started this really serious data science driven, we're both nerdy PhDs. So my brother and I were like, okay, let us like triangulate here. Let's take my brother's a quant and a physicist, and I'm a geographer and a social scientist. Let's put our skills to work here and find a place for mom and dad to retire. Maybe at the end of the program, we'll keep everyone on the hook here. <laughs> we won't reveal where they live until the end. But we think we found them a pretty climate resilient place that's affordable and so on. And we're like, God, this was a pretty damn long and arduous goose chase for two people. Meanwhile, over the course of the next decade, the total population of Americans that are of retirement age 
or that are generally less mobile, you know, than they used to be above 60, whatever, is going to be like 100 million people. You know, more than a quarter of the American population should be living in a climate resilient, stable place where if they don't want to be seasonal migrants, they don't want to be snowbirds, can't afford to be, certainly don't want their homes destroyed by by floods and and or, you know, suffer heat waves and rising sea levels. We've got to care for at least 100 million people, let alone the 400 million people that will actually live in the country as a whole. And we don't have an answer to that. America does not have an answer to that simple, humane challenge. And we answered it for my two parents. And so when starting this company, I was like, you know, how can we anticipate the future through climate models, through economic models, infrastructure spending, demographics, and figure out what the right places are for 400 million people to live? over the next 10, 20 years in America. Now we do it for the whole world. We're, we're globalizing the product and the geographical coverage, but obviously our core market is very much for America. But that doesn't mean only Americans. It means, all, again, all the institutional investors. The Japanese pension fund is the largest pension fund in the world. You know, you better believe they've got tens of billions of dollars at stake in American real estate. Everyone does. We're doing this for everyone, but the geography is primarily America. Yeah, and then I, I want to kind of get more granular, the the listeners, I mean, we're all feeling and seeing this in real time, right? I was skating my pond in Nashville on Christmas day. It was 20 below. You've got mm-hmm. this kind of atmospheric river going through California today. Meanwhile, the Alps don't have any snow in January and it's 65 degrees in Switzerland. So this is all happening. It's happening quicker than even the scientists predicted. Right. To your point, I'm a huge believer in there's going to be mass migration occurring across the globe as people, both from an economic standpoint and from a climate standpoint, need to leave home. Like, who are the winners and losers here? Well, I hate to think that there need to necessarily be as many losers as they're going to be, right? I mean, with foresight, you could say, let's undertake large-scale premeditated migration of people, not only on humanitarian grounds, but on economic grounds, because the world population is plateauing. So our economies are going to go through, we're going to have to exert a lot more effort in terms of productivity in order to have economic growth because the organic population size is dwindling. Now, we haven't had that problem ever because the world population has gone from you know zero to a million and stayed at a million for centuries. And suddenly in the last 100 years went from 2 billion to 8 billion. So no one alive today can ever recall and no parent of anyone alive today can ever recall a moment in their lifetimes. So you've never heard from another human being's mouth about a time when the world population was not growing like a hockey stick. So you don't understand what is about to hit us, what is hitting us right now which is global demographic stagnation. It's already happened, matter-of-factly, in America. Were it not for immigration, our fertility rate is effectively sub-replacement. And it's not just about the number of people, it's at the age of people, because you need young people. You need homeowners, renters, workers, caregivers, taxpayers, construction workers, doctors, nurses, right? A country of only geriatrics, you know, is hopefully a lovely retirement colony, but it's certainly not a thriving, dynamic, entrepreneurial, innovative economy, right? You're talking about Japan, basically, right? There's the Japan sphere. And by the way, I just came back from skiing in Japan on Niseko on Hokkaido Island. Now, we had two 
we, we had six feet of snow. <laughs> that was awesome. And it's funny, my hotel was packed with Europeans because when they get advance notice that it's going to be a bad winter, which every winter is now in the Swiss Alps, they book their tickets and they go to Japan. So Hokkaido is my first tip for your, for your listeners. Secondly, though, again, we're talking about individuals yourselves, your, your listeners, you know, who, who are thinking and, and, and have the means, the resources to anticipate this, to look at the data, to anticipate it and say, look, what's best for me right now? What's best for my retirement? What's best for my children and grandchildren? And how do I do this right? And it, doing it right isn't just for us alone. It's again, it's a national scale thing. What, what, we're, what, what I did for my, bro, what my brother and I did for my parents, we need to do for 100 million people. And we as investors should just be buying that one home on a prairie in Montana. This is not about just go join the Yellowstone Club, right? I mean, any one of you can go ahead and buy a membership in the Yellowstone Club. But what kind of a country are we if only a thousand people live in those places? Now, I get that you all want to, everyone wants to have their space, right? That's fine. But America is a gigantic country, newsflash. There's plenty of climate resilient zones for every one of the 400 million Americans of the future to live in a stable place. And if they do, and if we all participate in doing that right, we're actually going to remain a country that people want to live in because it'll also be a growing economy, not a place that you that we refer to in the literature as a survival society. Look at even wealthy people in Southern California, in Florida, right? Their homes reduced to nothing, right? Those who are wealthy had insurance. Those who didn't, you know, lose everything. It's just neither of those scenarios is good for our economy. We're not supposed to be like Lebanon, right? A place that gets destroyed in civil war or, or you know, places that suffer earthquakes and natural disasters and you spend your whole life rebuilding, right? Build right. Build in the right places. Build for everyone. That's how you have an economy that's looking forward, a society that's looking forward, a place that's productive. And that's what I want America to be. So let's talk about immigration. You know, I was down in the Florida Keys for the holidays with my family. I took a fishing trip with my boys. And in the span of probably four hours, I saw 20, 25 refugee boats from Cuban refugees. That's a small anecdote, right? But a larger story that we can kind of extrapolate from. And to your point, the demographics in America for organic growth are, are not sustainable. And so we need right. some type of immigration policy what would you advocate for if you were calling your Congress person up and saying, we need to address this? What do you think makes the most sense to enable America to sustain the, their economy long term? Well, there's a, there's a classic divide between skills-based and, and kind of, you know, humanitarian-based, you know, need-based and, and so on. And the answer is all of the above to some degree, but in the right volume at the right time, you know? So, you know, you've got a gigantic migrant influx right now crossing the Rio Grande. There is a backlog of, quite frankly, millions of people. A lot of people don't know this, but Mexico is officially the second largest repository of displaced people in the world behind Turkey. Now, Turkey is a collection right now of Turks, as well as Syrians, Iraqis, Afghans. I mean, a whole Pakistanis, like literally 5 million displaced people are in Turkey right now, and Turkey doesn't want them. So spare a thought for the Mexican government. Mexico is not a wealthy country. It's effectively the Turkey of, of Central America, you know, that has about three to four million displaced people from all across Latin America and other parts of the world, many of whom want to come to the United States, right? We have to 
help Mexico grapple with this. And part of helping Mexico is obviously absorbing any number of those populations that do want to come to the U.S. and to Canada. Now, between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, we can easily absorb three, four, five, eight, ten million legal or illegal humanitarian migrants in time. You don't open the release valve all at once. You do things gradually. You think about where they're going to live, what communities where they're going to resettle, housing, affordability, integration, and so forth. And that's itself economic activity. It's socioeconomic. It's constructive activity. Integration is an investment, right? This is what, you know, the Germany has learned. Germany took on well over a million Syrians and other uh, Middle Eastern peoples, Arab populations since 2015, really two or three million total. And Germany's invested massively in training them to work in automobile factories and having them learn German and so forth. And it's gone better than expected. So, you know, we, and for America, come on, we're an English speaking country in a land with the richest immigration history that's ever been known. And we're the best at it of any country that's ever existed. You know, we kind of, we got this. It's really not a big deal. One of the things I often remind people is when people say, oh my God, you know, you're writing about mass migrations. However, will we figure that out? I'm like, well, how about the last 300 years? We figured it out the last 300 years and we were the biggest winner by far of any country in the world. Part of me wants to shh, just don't talk about it because it will happen. But that's not actually true either, right? Talk about it proactively and do it right because we need people and we don't just want people to come and not assimilate. If they're going to be in the country, make the most train people, use them. And I'll make it a point to, you know, reach out to families in America because, you know, what happened during COVID, and I'm sure you read about this and heard about this and probably heard stories too. Who were the biggest losers besides those who tragically, you know, were were deceased during COVID? It's women. Women had to leave the workforce at record levels because there wasn't enough childcare. You had to manage your kids' remote education and your parents and, you know, groceries and shopping and cooking and cleaning, and you don't have enough childcare. Well, I can name you, you know, a good 45 million women from across Latin America and the developing world who would love to come and take care of your children so that you, the professional, educated women of America, don't have to suffer the indignity of having to choose between career and parenthood. And I'll tell you, I'm speaking to you from Singapore, which is, you know, on the other side of the planet. And in this country, we have abundant, right, Filipinos and and Indonesian nannies. Every house has one or two of them. No Singaporean woman, whether she's Chinese or Indian or expat, would ever have to make that choice. That's what I call civilized. I don't know what you call it. But again, if you don't make create that opportunity for your women and families to not have to make these choices that rich people should not have to make, that's not civilized. So now I'm being provocative on purpose, right? You know, we are we are not living up to the simple test of are we a civilized country? Old people should not die alone, right? Whether of COVID or anything. Well, there's hospices and elderly. we don't have enough elderly care. We don't have nurses. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have caregivers, enough massage therapists, none of those things. Human labor, robots aren't going to do the five things I just mentioned. And that's a good 50, 60 million jobs that aren't being taken right now. So we can, this is, this is, should not be ideological. This can be pure, cold hearted math still gets you to a humane response to how we should handle the immigration opportunity, which is literally in our best interest, not just the people that we're letting in. Yeah, the demographic cliff coming with the baby boomers and the healthcare crisis that's on the horizon is really scary to me. And if you look at Japan, I read somewhere that they have something like 
30,000 people a year are found dead alone in their homes. They have have no ability. They're aging so quickly. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. Let's kind of go back to a more granular investment thesis here. You talk a lot and you write a lot about investing in climate adaptation. Could you define climate adaptation and, and maybe hopefully what it is not? And then some actionable ways that people could allocate capital towards what is going to be a huge opportunity. Absolutely. And by the way, to your last point, America too has the one of the largest vacant housing stocks in the world. Not because the elderly die alone, though that all happens in America also. But Spain, as a percentage of like fixed capital formation, as a percentage of the housing stock, America, Spain, Italy, and Japan are the four countries with the largest vacant housing stocks in the world. So we got plenty of, again, like blighted real estate that should be rebuilt and used as affordable housing for people of all sizes. My argument is, if you're going to be doing infrastructure spending on the scale of trillions of dollars, which we should do, you have to overweight climate resilient locations because you don't want to be throwing good money after stranded assets in coastal areas. So when the Army Corps of Engineers declares eminent domain and says you cannot rebuild on that one particular strip of the coastal Carolinas because it's getting washed out every year, instead, here's $238,000 of your payout, go and live in a climate resilient area. We need to change our mortgage policies or insurance policies to incentivize and nudge people to choose places where, again, where the American dream can actually remain the American dream rather than places that are going to be destroyed in wildfires and floods. And we have plenty of those places and it can fit everyone. So I'm saying, look, right now, when you look and again, we're a data science, we're a software company, you know, so I'm speaking from the perspective of all of the data we've collected, there's the, some of the most resilient geographies all over the United States, whether it's in the Great Lakes region or even the Front Range, all over this gigantic country, right, from between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, is super cheap, undervalued, massively underpriced given its climate resilience, right? So we're pricing it, you know, through our models right down to the zip code level, and we give, you know, forecasted valuation. So right now, as an investor, either in property or land or other asset classes that are tethered to geography, industry, industrial, and so forth, you should be, be you could be, um, you have massive first mover advantage right now, basically, if you invest in climate resilient geography. And our mission is to map that out. And so adaptation is investing in resilient geography, in developing it, cultivating it for whatever the suitable purpose is, whether it's housing, industry, commercial, or otherwise. And that's what we, you know, direct investors to do, whether they are corporate, you know, whether it's real estate, private equity, whether it's pensions, family offices, endowments, everyone. So you referenced Florida, Southern California. I don't want you to kind of give away your secret sauce, but are there other areas that are just a no-go zone for you? And and we will tease out where your parents ended up, but I'm curious, what is like a red, red line for you? 
No, look, well, no-go zones are well-documented. And most products that are in this space that, that, that market themselves as climate risk analytics tools, that's what they are. Risk, risk, risk. They'll tell you, oh my God, don't go to the Florida Keys and don't go to obviously Lee County where Fort Myers is, you know, don't go to X part of Texas. You know, they'll, they'll steer you away from Phoenix because the water is running out. I don't need to rehash the entire list every day. Every top 10 news stories and so many websites is where not to go. Where is the fire? Where are the fires? And, you know, Paradise, California and so on and so forth. Our job is to talk about where you should go. Our company is called Climate Alpha, after all, right? It's about how to outperform the baseline. And there's plenty of those places. And, you know, we, we map all of those out. So no-go zones is kind of everything. We, we actually publish insights on our website. So in that section, you'll actually see we're putting up something right now. And we call we're disclosing what we think are some of the Zoom towns of the future. We profiled five locations that are not just the typical Zoom towns because they're affordable and you've got fast broadband but they're also climate resilient. So we took the subset of places that everyone's been talking about, like Boise or Austin or Raleigh or Denver. And then we said, well, which ones are the most climate resilient and why? And we came up with a new list of Zoom towns. Now, unlike the flash in the pan Zoom towns of the COVID period, like Boise, although Boise is also obviously very climate resilient, but its market has just crashed. We are looking at places that meet a much broader set of criteria, socioeconomic, as well as climate, dozens and dozens. We have 1,500 data sets and we have 65, 70 criteria that we let users filter through when they're choosing where they want to invest on our platform. And we're, we're, we publish you know, incrementally you know, those studies and site analyses and so forth. So again, there's so many, there's so many. It's actually like you know, endless. We're very lucky to be American. Let's just put it that way. So where's Nashville fall on the list? Am I okay here? Oh, you're, you're in a good place. I was okay. going to say that. Okay. Good choice. <laughs> Good. Even if even if you inherited it, still a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, my wife is from here. I'm from upstate New York. So, but it's proven to be a pretty good spot. And I think long term, we're, we're fairly well positioned. Well, can I just say something about the complexity of how the housing market works? Just as my brother and I were looking at where my parents should go, it turns out the ideal place would have been to stay exactly there because they they sold their home at a loss right before COVID. But if you know anything about New York State geography, which you do, Westchester County is a climate oasis. You know, my parents live near reservoirs and forests and a two acres and a pool and a big house. Like, and it turns out if they had just, I mean, if they had held on six more months, but they would have had to live through yet another winter, sight unseen, as you know, during COVID, people from Manhattan would have paid them double to buy their house. Right. Just based on some drone aerial footage, people would have paid them that much. So they actually took a loss. And the point is to say that people move for one reason at one moment in time and then move for another reason at a different moment in time. But COVID plus climate change, and this is the real message, COVID plus climate change, which you can now reformulate as remote work plus climate awareness. The combination of remote work and climate awareness should lead a lot of people in the middle class and, and upper middle class and beyond to start to think about investing for the long-term and resilient geographies. And as asset owners, as investors, you want to be one step ahead of them and be owning a lot of that land. So your position in Singapore, you have a global perspective. You travel extensively. You keep referencing that America's really well positioned. I agree with you. I think from a demographic and economic standpoint, Europe, South America, and some other locations are really going to suffer. Africa, 
Are there any other areas or, or countries that you think are positioned to endure well in this new cycle? Yeah, I mean, those are the ones that I feature in in the book, in the Move book, and I also, you know, we will also have the whole world on our on our platform as a company. Obviously, Canada is well positioned, and and what I did in the book is to profile Scotland and you know, in Canada and parts of Eastern Europe and parts of Central Asia, parts of Japan. You know, all over the world, I, I even looked at parts of Africa. You know, there, there's, there's pockets of climate stability, what, what do we call climate oases, you know, uh, on every continent, more or less. It's just that you'll, it'll be a moving target, right? You have to anticipate, what the, look at what the climate models are saying, look at the economies, look at the political stability. Let's not forget that Russia is in many ways a climate haven, but I don't see a lot of people running to invest in Russia right now. We as a company probably will, but probably 10 or 15 years from now, not, not sort of, you know, today. But so, but you know, the thing is that you don't, it's hard to answer the question at a country level. Geography is not about national borders. Geography is geography, right? It's terrestrial or it's maritime. What country and what city and, you know, who rules a place that can change any week as we know, but the the climate models, that's the sacred long-term, you know, vision for, for, or what dictates how resilient a place is and you want to access. And it could be parts of entire countries or become off limits. And that does include parts of the United States, let's be clear. Whereas huge parts of countries are going to be just fine and, and, and better than ever. And that's also true of the United States. So I, we look at things that literally down to the zip code level. There are 40,000 zip codes in America. I can give you 40,000 answers rather than just one, you know, and that that's the way it should be because ultimately there are many, many different scenarios for each parcel of land that you're looking at. And, and what about kind of from an infrastructure perspective, water, agriculture, construction, real estate, are there certain sectors or areas that you're more bullish on or bearish on? And obviously this is through the lens of kind of what the federal U.S. government policy is going to be and what legislation may or may not be passed in the future. Yeah. I mean, no question that there's a secular momentum behind renewable energy, you know, water as an asset class, as a utility and water products, whether it's desalination, delivery is going to be extremely important. This is really fundamental stuff. You know, one of the things we're doing is we call it the infrastructure renewal index. And we're looking at both public and private. So IRA legislation, as well as corporate spending on everything from obviously roads and bridges and highways and tunnels and railways to clean energy projects and nearshoring of industry, you know, the so-called battery belt that started. So every time new, new investment comes back into the States from abroad and there's commitments around semiconductors or solar panels or EV batteries, we're like, this is going to be an economic stimulus. This geography, this zip code is going to benefit. We do the same thing with Amazon warehouses and Airbnb rentals. When you see that velocity and you see investment, you see people or, or capital uh, or infrastructure, and you, you kind of make an assessment around how what the long-term multiplier effect is of that. And the multiplier effect is what we're looking for. And that gives you that, that sense that a geography is going to be really, really rebound economically. So that, that's part of how we model things out. So you just alluded to this, something that I've written about and explored a little bit, this concept of deindustrialization or, or near shoring. Do you think that's a trend that's going to continue? I don't mean the collapse of the industrial sector, but rather the, the, the hollowing out of maybe the outsourced manufacturing that had occurred during globalization. 
So what we're trying to do is to re-industrialize through near, nearshoring to combat the deindustrialization that we experienced during the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And I do think that we will succeed. It's going to be, a, it's going to take a lot more than what we've, what's been done so far. There was a phase when people started talking about nearshoring just on the back of shale oil and cheap energy, but labor costs ultimately factor in more. You know, which is why you should have higher immigration, actually, because now we have, you know, labor shortages and wages spiking. That's not a bad thing. People should get paid more. But the point is that you don't even have sufficient labor to do, conduct the work that needs to be done. So we're shooting ourselves in a foot in the foot. But I do think we'll succeed, but it's going to take a, a, a much stronger effort. But it's it's before it was all talk and no action. Now there's some action and some government backing to it for geopolitical reasons and, and COVID supply chain reasons. And I do think that it's not just an American story. I really think it is pan North American story because Mexico is part of how, you know, American car companies generate large output, right? Cheaper labor and free trade agreements via Mexico to Latin America and so forth. So we are. I believe in this concept of a North American union. We're never going to call it that. We're never going to be a European union. Nothing like that is going to happen. But a co- better coordination. And that, by the way, even Trump signed that, right? It doesn't matter where you stand on the aisle. President Donald Trump signed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, even though he said he hated NAFTA. And the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement is a very good thing at a very good time because we needed it during COVID and we should have it anyway. Good, We need good neighbors and we have great neighbors. I mean, again, let me let the geographer and me come out for a second. The two busiest borders on the planet Earth by this much, and for those who can't see, my arms are stretched as far wide as they possibly can be. The two busiest borders on the planet are US Canada and US Mexico, right? Now, that's a good problem to have. I just want everyone to understand it. it's not about how you think about immigration, it's about economic dynamism and stability, right? If that, that would not be the case if we didn't have ultimately more stable neighbors than most other countries have, right? So we've got to not just take it for granted, not shut it down, we've got to manage it maximize it and make the most of it. So I think that's, you know, we, we can do a lot better than what we're doing right now in terms of our relations with Canada and Mexico. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think we're going to see a return towards regionalization and, and yes. packs based on geography as opposed to kind of this global economic system. On the deindustrialization side, is it zero sum? If you near shore out of China, does that directly impact their economy? No, I mean, in fact, most, I mean, partially, but most companies that say that they're pulling investment out of China are actually doing what are called like revolving doors. You know, they're, they're still in China, but they're just increasing their presence in the US. So, you know, GM is still in China, right? And lots of companies are, are expanding in China because if you want to sell to Chinese to a very large consumer market, you need to make things in China because otherwise your competitors will eat your lunch, right? So when you, you're just because Apple wants to make more iPhones in Texas, right? It doesn't mean it's going to stop making them in China. You don't make an iPhone in Texas and then ship it to China right? That makes no sense whatsoever. So you still have to make where you sell. So that's going to dictate things more and more. So the things that we consume in North America, whether it's dishwashers, cars, iPhones, we should make them here, but we're also going to have to make the things that we sell in China, in China, and increasingly in Southeast Asia and India, because those are growing markets too. So globalization is not going away at all. It's not necessarily zero sum. So long as there are high growth markets and middle class economies that are getting connected and plugged in, the world economy is going to continue to grow. 
So it's not, it's not zero sum. So we're going to kind of wrap this up here the next five minutes or so. It's been fascinating. I want to thank you so much for your time. Let's, let's kind of land with, if you were going to put a dollar to work in U.S. real estate today, where would you put it? And then where did your parents ultimately end up going? Oh, right. They are somewhere in Northern California. It's not very far from Sacramento. It's a very nice area with orchards and, you know, agriculture, rivers, but it's, you know, not far from Lake Tahoe, not far from Sacramento, not that far from the East Bay. And it happens to be, again, we didn't know, it was totally reinforced by COVID, but it is a booming area. I mean, it can kind of do no wrong. So they they ultimately made a very, very smart play. Terrific. And then and the first question, I should have done a, a compound question, but if you were going to put yourself personally a dollar to work in U.S. real estate from a location geography standpoint, what would be your top kind of choices there personally? So, so the you know, geographical answer might mi- mimic, you know, what my parents have done. So we're looking at high growth areas that are climate resilient. And again, you know, we publish this on the Climate Alpha website, our insights around the Zoom towns of the future. So obviously you'd want to be, want to be buying, you know, condos and land and residential and, you know, whatever in those kinds of places. So we look at climate resilience and economic dynamism. We look at demographic, you know, inflows and so forth. So that's the geographical answer. In terms of asset classes, well, look, America is, you know, we have fewer children. So you've got more, you know, single child or no child households, more unmarried households. Interest rates are high for a while. So, you know, more people are going to be renters. So the multifamily kind of market is very strong. The rental market SFR, you know, is strong. So, you know, we you got to kind of go with the flow, looking at the demographics. More people need to live in colonies or communities where you're sharing services because more people are elderly and don't want to own as much stuff. So you want to kind of invest into that trend. Again, my my view, my hope is that what we've done for my parents, you know, we as a country do for 100 million, you know, aging and retired Americans. So, but who has done that so far? We haven't. We haven't done it at all. So if you're an investor, you want to be saying, put a dollar to work. Well, you know, invest in in retirement communities, right? Of which we need to build an endless number. And we have, we were just at the earliest stages of that process right now. Parag, I want to thank you so much for coming on. You referenced some websites, but if folks are interested in learning more about the work you're doing, the content you're creating, and some of the investment thesis that you're putting out there, what's the best way for them to get in touch and learn more? Sure. So the company is Climate Alpha. So it's climatealpha.ai. My personal website is paragkanda.com. And we've got links there also. And, you know, we publish a lot of research. We're trying to be as transparent, open source, public service oriented as, as possible. A lot of our companies obviously are large financial institutions. But, you know, ultimately, the real estate market, you know, where we began is going to thrive if, if every American can, can afford the right home in the right place. And that's a slight modification of the American dream. It's not just own a home. It's got to be in the right place because we got to think about geography more than we used to. Parag, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been an incredible episode. We didn't get into everything you're doing. For our listeners, please do leave us a review. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. And a question that I ask folks that come on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? That's a great question. You know, we actually do a lot of mindfulness in this house. My my mom is a very active practitioner and she's been kind of coaching me on this for 20, 20 years. And now she coaches my kids via Zoom. And so we as a family, my wife, me, we do a lot of kind of breathing. And, and I will say, even for those who are not believers, just do like literally one day, five minutes in the morning, 
and compare how you feel at 11 p.m. that night versus on a day where you don't take that five minutes and see for yourself that, you know, that's it. It's a purely empirical exercise. You know, it's 11 p.m. right now where I am and I'm like fresh as a daisy because I did my five minutes this morning, you know? Yeah, you're you're bringing some serious energy for 11 p.m. your time. And I want to thank you for carving out. I know you're a very busy person. This has been incredible. I want to thank you again for coming on. And I very much encourage all of the listeners Check out the website. They're producing incredible content, very insightful, and this will impact how you allocate capital moving forward. So Prague, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Likewise, really had a good, great chat. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.